a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Midnight in the Garden of East Texas read the Texas Monthly headline in January 1998. The article begins in Carthage, Texas, at Daddy Sam's Barbecue and Catfish, where you kill it, we cook it, is their motto. And sitting at his usual table is District Attorney Danny Buck Davidson. The town is abuzz with conversation over a man named Bernie Tita, who Danny Buck is prosecuting for the murder of 81-year-old widow Marjorie Nugent. But Danny Buck might be the only man in town who wants to see Bernie behind bars. As a waitress brings Danny Buck his iced tea, she tells him, Bernie's a sweet man. Another person nearby tells Danny Buck that nobody could sing Amazing Grace like Bernie. And Danny Buck is beside himself. He tells them, you know Bernie confessed, don't you? But they just shrug. One woman tells him, Even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. But why? How could Bernie Tita be a confessed murderer and beloved neighbor? And how could a town of 6,500 people be rooting for the killer over his victim? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is... Crime of a Lifetime. We want to take you down south to a small town tucked in the piney woods of East Texas. Carthage. It's just 20 miles from the Louisiana border, and the town is rich with history. And we mean that quite literally. I mean, in the 1940s and 50s, it was the capital of oil production in the U.S., And in 1995, no brags, but Carthage was on the list of the 100 best small towns in America. Wow. Wow. That feels really impressive. Wow. Totally. I mean, it's the kind of place where you know your neighbor, you love your neighbor, you help your neighbor, you give your neighbor a cup of sugar. It's really not the place where you'd find someone who'd murdered their neighbor. But Hmm. here we are. Well, it's a conservative town, uh, socially and economically. It's Reagan conservative. You know, we all have that uh, grandma, I think, that uses that word. And we have to say, you know, grandma, come on. We don't we don't use that word anymore. You know what? She'd be real at home here in Carthage. It's filled with elderly, uh, really wealthy people that, I don't know, they don't have the strongest handle on political correctness, I guess, to put it mildly. To put it into perspective... What Carthage is sort of known for is they have a huge population of well-off widows who are living off of old oil money. So, like, imagine that energy in Carthage, which makes a man like Bernie Tita a bit of an anomaly. In 1990, Bernie is a soft-spoken, peachy and sweet... I mean, you say... Peachy, what do you mean by that? But I saw pictures and his cheeks evoke peaches. It, pretty adorable, you know? 32 He's years old. He's got kind eyes. Yes. He's got kind eyes. He's working as an assistant funeral director at Hawthorne Funeral Home. 
He's an embalmer there, and he's super awesome, excellent with the hair and makeup component. He's really good at just, like, making dead people look less deadish, which I think that, you know, that's ultimately what you're going for, right? We know what you're thinking, you know, funeral home, embalming, hair and makeup. And to answer the question burning in that brain of yours, yes, Bernie is gay. Or as the locals in Carthage would say, they would call him, you know, light in his loafers. Or he had a little tutti-frutti voice. Because this conservative town, if we haven't made that clear, they love a euphemism. You know, there's like a lot of repressed energy happening. No one wants to name it. They're going to just call it names. But beyond those nicknames or those euphemisms, that's not just what Bernie's known for around town. Everyone kind of feels like he's the empath of Carthage. You know, he's more than just this funeral home embalmer. He's a living, breathing shoulder to cry on. So he's incredible at his job. At funerals, he sings hymns for the families. He takes extra care and brings attention to these grieving widows in their time of need. He passes them handkerchiefs, and he quotes comforting scriptures to them. Yeah, he's just going really out of his way to take care of them. It's really sweet. And it can be weeks after their husband's funeral, and Bernie's going to call them to check in. Do you need anything? Do you need me to come to the house and do anything for you? And listen, I know what you're thinking. And before you try to say, wait a minute. What's Bernie doing? Is he trying to get in the good graces of these rich old widows? No. And how dare you? It is not that kind of story. And Bernie is just as nice, I'll have you know, to the poor widows as he is to the rich. This is just his style. He's a nice guy. We got a meet cute coming up. It is March 1990. Bernie Tita is tending to the body of Rod Nugent Sr. Rod Nugent Sr. is a oil man and bank investor who recently died suddenly from heart failure. His widow is 75-year-old Marjorie Nugent, and she is grieving next to his casket. Now, only a few people show up to give their condolences, and she stands next to the casket, just stone-faced and alone. It's really sad-looking, and she starts to shiver in the cold chapel. Yeah, so Bernie's there, and he sees her, and he comes up to her and puts his coat on her to keep her warm. And with his beautiful, angelic voice, he sings a hymn for Marjorie's husband. And then he helps her outside into her car to head to the cemetery. And once at the gravesite, Bernie stands next to Marjorie, ready to catch her if she faints. And to be clear, he's done this before, like we said. He does treat her like every other widow that walks through his funeral doors, you know? He he does the thing where after a couple of days after the funeral, he gives her a call and he offers to help her with anything she needs. And he feels really sorry for her. I mean, maybe even more than some other widows because Marjorie has a bit of a reputation. She doesn't really have many friends and he doesn't see that she has the support of her family. Right. And I mean, he's heard the rumors around town. I don't want to simplify things, but, you know, a lot of people are talking and it sounds like maybe she sucks. People are saying she's awful. They are. They're like saying she's terrible, that she's cruel, that she thinks she's better than everybody in town. But all this is just to say that Bernie, he doesn't get taken with those rumors. He decides to make his own opinion. He doesn't care about it. What matters to him is that this is a grieving widow and he wants her to feel loved and seen. 
And I think because she didn't have anyone, it's almost like he pays more attention to her in that way because he knows she's so alone. And in the months after the funeral, Bernie makes himself more and more available to Marjorie's needs. And he becomes her lifeline in a lot of ways. He's seemingly the only person who takes an active interest in her well-being. And that just seems like the kind of person Bernie is. That's just one part of what makes Bernie so beloved. He's also a guy that just takes a really active role in his community. He's sort of a shopaholic and buys things in multiples. So if he loves something, he's like, these are great sweatpants. I'm going to buy three pairs. I'm going to keep one and you get a pair and you as well. He's a nice guy. He gives stuff to his neighbors, but he does get himself into some pretty nasty credit card debt as a result. But it's important to him to support the local businesses and, like I said, give back to the community. He directs theater productions at the local college. He serves on the Chamber of Commerce's Christmas Decorations Committee. Fun stuff. Which, by the way, I've heard that that committee is very serious in Carthage. It's a quite an honor to be on the Christmas Decorations Committee. In addition to all this, he's also an active member of the First United Methodist Church. On occasion, he even leads the Sunday sermon. In fact, one member of the congregation went so far as to say that he was doggone better than the paid preacher. High praise. High praise. The Yelp reviews are back. Five stars. Several residents in Carthage actually call him, and I'm not mincing words here. They call him an actual angel. So it sounds like he and his new friend Marjorie could not be more different. It's like, like just couple as, vibes. Totally. As much as he is loved by this town, she is loathed. Because people are saying that she is the meanest woman in East Texas. And I don't know geography that well, Carrie, but Texas— You don't. We know that big, this is right? in fact. But Texas is huge. It's massive. It's bigger than the entire— country of England. That's how big Texas is. And Marjorie avoids everyone. In fact, she lives on the outskirts of town. So she actively separates herself from the members of the town. She doesn't give money to local causes. She doesn't participate in any civic activities. She barely nods at her neighbors when she's in public. In fact, one resident is quoted as saying that, you know, if she held her nose any higher, she would have drowned in a rainstorm. Which that burn. That is a burn. It's a sick burn. Sick but burn. Real it's, thinker. It's not just these townspeople that don't like Marjorie. She and her sister don't speak anymore. She's estranged from her only son. So her family, uh, they're not getting along with her either. She seems hard to get along with. Just as an example, she's incredibly critical and she really isn't afraid to say it directly to your face. With Marjorie, you're not worried about um, her talking behind your back because she's going to tell you how she feels to your face. She tells people that they aren't good enough or smart enough or in any way worth her time. It's like a reverse Stuart Smalley. Years later, uh, her nephew actually publishes an article in the New York Times describing, this is so dark, how Marjorie tried to get him committed to a mental institution. You know why? Why? Wouldn't get a haircut. Uh, 
I mean, I haven't seen photos of his hair, but I just, I cannot speak to whether it was bad enough to uh, merit being institutionalized. But if that weren't bad enough, Marjorie also tried to steal custody of his sister by lying and saying that her parents were unfit just because she wanted a daughter. So here we are, we have Bernie and Marjorie. Marjorie needs a companion and Bernie thinks he can save her. It's like we have the town bully and the town angel coming together. It's like a lifetime movie. So let's get out the popcorn because honestly, what could possibly go wrong? So here we are in the months that follow Marjorie's husband's funeral, and Bernie repeatedly visits her at her 6,000-square-foot home. Now, when I read that, I, that doesn't mean anything to me personally. I don't yeah, understand I don't know anything. how I don't big know is a 6,000-square-foot home. Well, so I'll tell you, I Google imaged it, and just take it from me, it is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous vibes. It's no joke. <laughs> Quite nice. So he's there having lunch with her every day, and he's doing this thing where he leaves cute little notes for her around the house that she'll find that just make her feel loved, maybe bring a smile to her face and lighten her load during this time of grief. And he starts inviting her to community events. You know, he takes her to local theater shows and choir performances. They wine and dine all around town. It seems like he's slowly getting her to come out of her mean shell And she falls for him. And in this moment, I think he brings out a side of her that maybe she's lost touch with. He makes her feel young again. And to be fair, he is half her age, so he does bring down the average a little bit. But I'm sure everything that they do makes her feel youthful. Yeah, and people are, you know, people are talking. They're walking around town. They're holding hands. They're uh, giving hello and goodbye smooches, I suppose, in public. And people are like, what's uh, what's going on? And Bernie has all kinds of excuses. He's like, listen, I got to hold her hand. She's old. She stumbles sometimes when she's walking around. And besides, she's really more like a mother figure to me, and I'm kind of like a son to her. And, you know, to his point, Bernie's gay. But one man who had lunch with Bernie and Marjorie during some of their affections later would testify about these interactions. And he said, I would say that the greeting kiss or goodbye kiss was not one you would give your mother. It's pretty unclear at this point whether there's an affair going on between these two or not. What we do know is that Marjorie starts giving Bernie gifts, big gifts, like $7,000 Rolex kind of gifts. He's spending a lot of his free time with Marjorie and all the other widows. Remember, he used to pay everybody mind this way. And they're like, hello, where's my Bernie time? Uh, When's he going to comfort me? Do I got to get this guy an expensive watch for him to give a shit? What's going on? Where'd he go? And the answer seems to be yes. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. In 1991, it's just a year after Bernie and Marjorie met, Bernie is now getting up early every day, driving to Marjorie's home, making her coffee, picking out her clothes, before then he goes to work, and then they do the thing where they attend concerts, they go to dinner together, and in addition to the social calendar, Marjorie calls her bank and she tells them, listen, Bernie's going to help me out, and I want you to accept any checks that are signed by Bernie So now Bernie has a more active role in her finances because I guess he's found a way to sort of help with that too. 
And in return for him uh, helping her with these finances, Marjorie's like, let, let me get you something nice. What's a nice thing a friend gets a friend? A two-bedroom house. Oh, wow. Especially if it's close to you. So she's getting this two-bedroom house just one mile away from that estate that she's in. But I have to say, among these allegations that there might have been uh, a romantic relationship here, Mm -hmm. why not be like, I'm in this huge house. Bernie, you can move in. You can be in the East Wing. Um, It feels like this is a friend zone move. I mean, it's a good friend move. It's it's a house. <laughs> That's a good gift. Hey, Quinn, Quinn, I got to say, you're a good friend to me. Can can you buy me a house? No. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> I tried. I tried. <laughs> so Bernie's in his new house, and he's decorating. He's throwing up some white curtains. And, of course, he gets mm-hmm. some porcelain lawn penguins. I, I don't know. I got to trust he had some kind of vision there. I, I don't see it, but I want to trust him. See, this is where we disagree, Quint. Porcelain lawn penguins? Listen, I'm going to say I don't I don't trust the vision. I really don't. Mm. But in addition to the home and the penguins, Marjorie is taking him on these gorgeous, lavish vacations. They go to Las Vegas, San Francisco. They travel the world together. They go to Hong Kong, Bangkok, Russia. They take cruises down the Nile River in Egypt and up the Rhine River in France and Germany. I feel like now is a great time to say we're sponsored by Viking Cruise, but they haven't returned our calls. All of this just sounds like they're living the life O'Reilly. Like, they are going hard on vacation, play, fun parties. Yeah, she's loving it. She's on cloud nine. She's never been happier. Her ex-husband didn't do that kind of stuff with her. And now, you know, for Bernie's part, I think he's pretty comfy. He's enjoying some of this luxury as well. You think he's enjoying these lavish trips in a two-bedroom home with porcelain long penguins? Oh, he is. <laughs> and Marjorie is growing more and more dependent on him in her everyday life. She starts paging him multiple times a day while he's working. It's like he's working two jobs, you know, one at the funeral home and one as her personal assistant. And eventually in 1993, she offers to hire him full-time as her business manager for a big old raise, for a much higher salary than he's making at the funeral home. And he's already doing the work, so why not get paid for it, right? It seems like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't he say yes? So when Bernie tells his boss, Don Lipsy, about the offer, Don says to him, you know what kind of woman Miss Nugent is. Whatever you think you're going to get out of her, you're going to have to earn every penny of it. But Bernie reassures him and says, deep down inside, she's a sweet woman. We will get along just fine. Ooh, the group pair of them need some boundary talks because I think we all know this can't turn out well. So once Bernie becomes Marjorie's business manager, that really is going to mark the crumbling of this honeymoon phase. Bernie's life doesn't entirely revolve around Marjorie Nugent. Sure, he makes her coffee and he lays out her medicines in the morning and he's now managing the bank accounts. But he is still, you know, going to church and teaching at the college theater, and he has friends he likes to spend time with, so he's doing some other stuff. Yeah, but Marjorie's not into that. 
She doesn't like sharing Bernie with anybody. And she manages to hold on to him, to white knuckle him any chance she gets. If he isn't at her house at 11.45 sharp for their daily lunch date, she calls him over and over and over again until he shows up. And then he shows up, and it's not just going to be lunch. He's got to style her hair. He's got to pluck the hairs on her chin. He's got to pick out the outfits and lay them out for her, help her with the laundry. Oh, and of course, trim her toenails. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) But Bernie is starting to feel like some kind of prisoner when he goes to see these friends now he has to stop mid-conversation to check in on Marjorie otherwise he says she's going to give him living hell so Marjorie is now calling Bernie like three to four times an hour to run errands for her this is so aggressive And it gets to the point where both of their lives are so intermingled. Specifically, Bernie's is so entangled with Marjorie's needs. But that was the trade-off that he made when he took this job. And this is all happening in addition to the Rolex, the vacations, the dinners, the theater. But the biggest perk that happens is that Marjorie updates her will and she makes Bernie the sole beneficiary when she dies. So perhaps because of her over-possessiveness, Bernie decides, you know, I deserve a little more. And he starts to take some more money out of her bank accounts, maybe more than Marjorie realized. It, just, it seems like what he did was sort of give himself a secret raise. You know, but I, I do want to be clear, we're not actually sure what she knew about Bernie's purchases. According to him, she wanted to spend all her money with him so that none of her kids would ever see a thin dime. She didn't want them to have a thin dime. She didn't want them to have a a thick dime. No dimes for the kids. But it is not clear if she intended that Bernie do what he does next. Now, Carthage, Texas, this is his town. He's like the town mascot. He loves it. And now he finally has the power and the means to give back. So he's not going to waste any time. Bernie is living out his Oprah fantasy. At this point, he buys cars for 10 residents who can't afford them. He's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. He buys a house for a struggling young couple. He pledges $100,000 to the First United Methodist Church for an addition to the building. He pays for student scholarships at Panola College, where he directs theater productions, because let's not forget, he does have a passion. He leads a fundraising drive for the Boy Scouts. He buys all the tickets to the local theater shows and choir concerts so that residents can go for free. He buys the shuttered trophy shop in town so that the kids at Carthage High School and the youth sports leagues can all get their participation trophies the next year. (laughs) There's like something so incredibly altruistic about all of this stuff because it's just like giving people joy. You know, he's clearly getting a lot out of it. And In addition to this, he also invests in a clothing store idea because he has this hope, this dream, if you will, that Carthage can have its very own high-end store. Think Neiman Marcus, think Nordstrom's. But because we're in Carthage, it's not gonna be Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus. Bernie invests in a store 
that is titled Boot Scootin' Western Wear. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's really single-handedly financing the uh, culture here in Carthage. And, and like I said, as far as we know, Marjorie's not aware of any of this. Though I cannot imagine she'd begrudge him the addition of boot scootin' western wear to this town. No, everyone needs a pair of chaps and saddles and <laughs> cowboy boots, especially Marjorie. She loves her chaps. By 1995, Bernie's life has changed dramatically from when before he met Marjorie Nugent. Back then, he was just a beloved funeral director, lay preacher, angelic tenor, and a good Samaritan. But now, he's Carthage's very own Oprah. But it's around this time that Bernie tells his sister that Marjorie's not doing very well, and she's beginning to show signs of dementia. She's already kind of a a nasty gal, as we've outlined, so I guess the dementia might make it worse. She fires the gardeners because the flowers don't bloom on time. And she asks Bernie to buy a 22 rifle to shoot the armadillos in her yard, which, you know, actually that does sound pretty in character. And suddenly, this sweet, kind-hearted man who's never shot a gun in his life is out there stalking armadillos, and she's, like, yelling out to him sitting on the front porch. (laughs) The movie writes itself. On the outside, Bernie's life is going great. But inside the walls of the Nugent estate, he's cracking. He later confesses that he begins to fantasize about just hitting her over the head with a baseball bat, but he hates the idea that she might suffer. And in 1995, Bernie tells his sister that Marjorie's controlling nature is wearing him down. Uh, Remember that this woman, it was her hobby to insult people. And even though she seems to care for Bernie, he's not immune. The mild dementia symptoms are exacerbating it, and so she is calling him names more and more. She's belittling him over anything. He has to be perfect at all times, or he faces her wrath. So on the one hand, this really just sucks, right? And he should quit. But then on the other, there's just this tremendous amount of pressure, I think, that he's feeling because he knows I am Marjorie's only friend. If I leave her, she has... No one. She'll be by herself. It'd be like losing her husband all over again. Which all of this sounds like a very altruistic reason to stay, but I think it's also worth noting that there's a lot of cool stuff that he has because of this job. And frankly, he doesn't want to face her ire, right? He's seen how vindictive she is, and if he were to put a boundary in place, his name might just fall right out of that will. And the money, the extravagant trips, and the luxurious lifestyle he's grown accustomed to could very well just disappear. So Bernie convinces himself that he just has to stick this out. She's an old woman in her 80s. She could die any day now and leave him with everything. But on the other hand, she could live for years. I mean, anger can really do a lot for your life. You know, they do say if you're really pissed off, you can actually live forever. And at this point, Bernie is just teetering on the edge of sanity, and it won't be long before he snaps.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Bernie is now at a tipping point. He's on the edge of a breakdown. He's having fantasies about killing Marjorie Nugent. So really, it's, it's only a matter of time. One year later in 1996, it's now the week before Thanksgiving, and Bernie cannot bear it any longer. Bernie comes to Marjorie's house at the usual time of 7 a.m. to make her her coffee and breakfast. And while there, on this particular day, he strategically places that 22 armadillo shooting rifle in the bathroom near the garage. He comes over later, and Bernie asks Marjorie if she wants to go out for lunch. Sure. So she starts to head toward the garage ahead of Bernie, and... He, following behind, grabs the rifle from the bathroom. Marjorie bends down to pet her dog, Bo, and bang! Bernie shoots her once in the back. Marjorie falls to the ground, and when Bernie steps closer, he realizes she's still breathing. He then places the muzzle of the twenty-two against her back and shoots Marjorie Nugent three more times until she's dead. Bernie then drags Marjorie's five-foot-two body across the floor to the utility room where Marjorie has a deep freezer. He then wraps her body in a sheet. He folds her body and places it in the freezer, concealing her body under a bunch of chicken pot pies. For good measure, he tapes the door shut because, as we all know, tape is a deterrent to anyone opening anything. Just ask a wrapped gift. Yeah, foolproof. He gets out the hose and washes that garage floor, throws out the spent bullet casings, then he leans the gun against the wall next to the freezer and just goes on about his day. Not only does he just go about his day, he goes on with the rest of his life. Everyone that sees Bernie in the weeks that followed this murder says that he seemed just fine. It's as if nothing has happened. Nothing has changed in his life. In fact, the day he killed Marjorie, he took the cast of the play he was rehearsing out for pizza on her dime. But internally, ooh, he must have been freaking out. People are coming by asking about Marjorie all the time. And Bernie has to make up all kinds of lies to cover up what's happened. So first his sister asks about Marjorie and he says Marjorie went to see her sister in Ohio the one that she, you know, still talks to. And then people are coming by the house, and he has to say, oh, shoot, you know, you just missed her. Or, oh, golly, wouldn't you know it? She's just taking a nap right now. He is very, very, very close to having to pull some sort of Mrs. Doubtfire shenanigans. Or at the very least, Weekend at Bernie's. (laughs) One of the two. 
And because he's in control of her finances, he's making sure all of her bills are paid, he sweeps her driveway, he mows her lawn, and he keeps this ruse up for months. Later on, one of the excuses he tells people, he says that Marjorie's in the hospital right outside of Carthage recovering from a small stroke she had and that she's not doing so well, but she's under a different name because she doesn't want anyone to come visit her, especially not her family. And to be fair, would have anyone visited her? Uh, I don't know. Probably not. But in the meantime, this is all going on and Bernie's getting his life back. He continues directing theater shows at the college and singing in the choir. And now he's got all the money, but none of the hassle. So his spending spree, it just continues. He goes and gets a pilot license and buys a couple of airplanes And he pays for multiple hangers at the local airstrip. According to Marjorie's nephew, you remember the guy who wouldn't get a haircut, Bernie begins investing in German gay porn, as most of us would do if money were no object. Ah, yes. The dream. You know, when you ask your friends what they would do if they won the lottery, that's like the number one choice. It's in the top three. Right. It's like a new home, travel the world, German gay porn. I mean, all jokes aside, in the months after Marjorie's death, Bernie spends something like $2 million, and he just tells himself that it's what Marjorie would have wanted. Listen, I've never met Marjorie, and I've only heard mixed reviews, frankly, but do you really think that she's the type of woman who would want to invest in German gay porn? Who wouldn't? (laughs) So nine months pass, and... Bernie is still successfully flying under the radar. Marjorie is still under a stack of pot pies. But Bernie's story keeps changing. He knows he's doing a bad job hiding what happened. He knows that his time is limited and that maybe in some ways that's a good thing. He tells himself that once he's finally caught, she'll get a proper burial and that that really will be for the best. And he's right, because eventually a few people do start to snoop and figure out what's going on. I mean, her stockbroker is the first person to notice that something isn't right. Usually she sends him a thank you card and a Christmas turkey, but in 1996, he got neither. And in 1997, she's meant to show up to sign some very important documents, but she never arrives. So he calls the sheriff's department. And another person that will remain anonymous in Carthage also notices Marjorie's disappearance. I guess it might even be the only person in town who cared uh, enough to tip the police off that Marjorie's missing because she's not exactly, she's missing, but she's not missed. With these two tips, a deputy calls Marjorie's son, Rod Jr., and tells him, look, something might have happened. And Rod does not get along with his mom, just like nobody gets along with his mom, but it is his mom. So he drives up to her estate with his daughter, Jennifer, and several Panola County deputies to look around, see what they can find. And they get to the house, and they're hoping they can find maybe a hospital bill or some evidence as to where she might have gone to. But instead, they go to the utility room, they open the deep freezer, and there they find Marjorie Nugent, frozen solid, 
inside. After they find her in the deep freezer, they actually power up a generator to the deep freezer so they can transport it while still keeping power and keeping it cold to the police department to preserve it for the medical examiner. But once they're there, it takes two days for Marjorie's body to thaw to perform an autopsy. And Bernie is right away suspect numero uno. There is no waiting. There is no waiting. They're like, it's Bernie. Immediately. They're like, so Bernie did it. (laughs) So he's on his way to take a team of Little League baseball players and their parents out to eat. Sounds like our Bernie. And the sheriff's deputies approach him and they're like, hey, we need to have a chat. So he goes to the police department with the officers and he sits in the interrogation room answering their questions. And it's not long before he just gives up the ruse, and he calmly admits to killing Marjorie Nugent just nine months earlier. Bernie's detained and charged with first-degree murder and the theft of over $200,000. The IRS levels a money laundering charge at him, too. And meanwhile, in Ohio, Marjorie's sister hears about her death, to which she responds, what a relief. And the town of Carthage is shocked when the truth comes out. They can't even believe that their peachy, sweet, angel-voiced Bernie is a cold-blooded murderer. And around town, you hear lots of people saying, poor Bernie, but what you don't hear around town is people saying, poor Marjorie. Danny Buck Davidson leads the prosecution of Bernie Tita, and he finds out pretty quick that the people in Carthage aren't likely to convict Bernie of murder. It's almost like they think Marjorie deserved it and that Bernie was the real victim. Now, the people in the town are calling Bernie an angel. And when Danny Buck Davidson hears this, he responds, oh, he's an angel, all right, an angel of death. It's a powerful tagline. I wonder if he used that in court. I think he did. I think he did. Well, the other thing he does is he gets the trial moved two counties over just so he can find a jury that doesn't love Bernie and hate Marjorie, one that might be willing to convict. And just to be clear, we've heard about cases where the trial is moved because the defendant can't get a fair trial or um, is already presumed to be guilty based on media coverage or public opinion. It is incredibly rare that the prosecutor is trying to move the case two counties over to get a fair trial for the prosecution. Bernie hires a lawyer named Scrappy Holmes, which just... The names! (laughs) The names! (laughs) Is this a vaudeville show? Wait a minute. Is this German porn? (laughs) What's going on? Now, Scrappy is incredibly overwhelmed at his task, right? Because he's now getting calls from the people of the town of Carthage that want to come in and be character witnesses for Bernie. The people of Carthage are, like, showing up for Bernie in droves. Yeah, the preacher at the uh, Methodist church tells the congregation to pray for Bernie. And the mayor publicly advocates for his acquittal. But ultimately, none of this really matters because Bernie's already confessed to the crime. There's no doubt that he did it. There aren't enough character witnesses in the world to stop the inevitable. And despite all of the love and support he's receiving from his neighbors, 
justice has to be served for Marjorie and her family. Sometimes even angels fall from grace, and when they do, they have to face the righteous consequences of their actions. In February of 1999, Bernie Tita is sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Marjorie Nugent. Well, on paper, the story here seems to suggest that Bernie is, I don't know, like a con man that lured an old woman at her greatest point of weakness and killed her and turned her fortune into a life of luxury for himself and his porcelain penguins. But I don't know if it's that cut and dry. I mean, the people of Carthage certainly don't feel that way. I mean, think about it. What kind of con man gives away his fortune? Bernie has always been a man who gives things away, whether it's his time, his love, or Marjorie's money. (laughs) But he gives away everything. Mm -hmm. While Bernie's still in prison, all the money, though, that he gave to Carthage, all those investments he made in the local church and the college, in boots, scootin' Western wear, it's all seized by the police. And lives are upended. The church is now in debt. And I think to Bernie, that's worse than the life sentence is the harm that he might have inadvertently caused now to the town. Now, I just want to say, Marjorie is the victim in all of this. I mean, Bernie murdered her in cold blood, and he deserves to go to prison for that. But there is the question of whether he was a con man, and I just, I don't think that's what he was. I mean, I think it's really complicated. I think their relationship was mutually beneficial, but also mutually exploitative. I mean, it's a really about a relationship that went really, really wrong. Yeah, and like we said, it feels like something you would see in a movie. And guess what? In 2011, it was made into a dark comedy by Richard Linklater titled Bernie, starring Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and Matthew McConaughey. And they just, they portray this whole story as a sort of West Texas Fargo. And while the truth is probably a little more mundane, they really did capture this cuckoo energy of this story really well, I think. I think it's important to note that Marjorie's immediate family, her son and grandchildren, do not like the portrayal of the film. And they believe that Bernie took advantage of an elderly woman for his own financial gain, which is something that is a very serious thing that happens often. I mean, the film actually caused the courts to look at the resentencing of Bernie based on some additional information that was not brought to light in court. And while he was out and waiting resentencing, Bernie was actually staying with Richard Linklater, the director of the film. And in an interesting anecdote, Bernie would babysit Linklater's kids while he was out of jail. Hmm. All right. However, Bernie's sentence was not changed, and he's still in prison today. He's serving a life sentence, and he's eligible for parole in 2029. He'll be 71, just 10 years younger than the age Marjorie Nugent was when she was killed. And if he's lucky, and I'd wager he is, Bernie might just feel the grass beneath his feet again. But will he deserve it? Or will a con man be free to pull his tricks once more? The thing about prison is that I don't think Bernie's actually a danger to the world, and I and I don't think he uh, really needs to be reformed necessarily. I just feel like these circumstances were so particular that it was just the perfect recipe for disaster and death. So should he be in prison? 
well, yeah, because here's the thing, Bernie, you can't kill people even if they're super duper mean. I feel like we all know someone like Bernie. And I think actually some of us can put ourselves in Bernie's shoes. Like, I think he genuinely got a lot out of helping people, specifically Marjorie. But sometimes doing something selflessly can lead to selfish feelings, right? Like, I'm not being valued enough. Why is this? And it can drive you crazy. And it seems like it all just piled on top of Bernie. I mean, let's not mince words here. He murdered a woman in cold blood. But the question is his motive. Did he snap or was he just trying to get her money faster? I mean, that seems like the only two options we've laid out in Mm -hmm. this case. I read somewhere that if only he had just dropped her body in the ocean or disposed of her body in some way, no one would have found her. And then he would have been able to inherit all of the money since he was the person in the will. But there's something about the fact that he kept her body on ice for nine months. He didn't move her. It doesn't feel like it was a grand plan. It was something that he did maybe rash and then put it away and ignored it and just hoped no one would find it and hoped it would just go away until it all caught up with him. And now he's paying for his crime now. Yeah. And if he got out of prison, would I let him babysit for my kids? You know, it, it, It probably just depends on the hourly rate, but I am inclined to say yes. Quinn, in all honesty, you let me babysit your kids, so I don't know if your track record is good. You might let Bernie babysit your kids. I have very, very low standards. Um, (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) in all seriousness, there were things about this story that made Bernie seem more Robin Hood-esque than villainous. So I just wish that he found a different way, a less murdery one, To be the generous man, I think that deep inside he probably was. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. An article from Texas Monthly titled Midnight in the Garden of East Texas and Bernie in Hell by Skip Hollinsworth. And a New York Times article titled How My Aunt Marge Ended Up in the Deep Freeze by Joe Rhodes. Please check out these sources if you want to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Hansdale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.